watchers in the fourth dimension. It is pure thought. It supplies only the truth. It's we who have broken down. We have failed. There is a stranger amongst us. He must be destroyed. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And you are an enemy of mechanized evolution. This episode, we're back on 20th Century Earth for a full story for the very first time since Planet of Giants, and for the first time at normal size since, well, ever. It's time for the War Machines. This story starts off from the decision that producer Innes Lloyd and script editor Jerry Davis had made to replace historical stories with stories set on contemporary Earth. With that in mind, they wanted to ground the show more firmly in reality and science fact, so they brought in a chap called Dr. Kit Pedler, who was a surgeon and a microbiologist, as their scientific advisor. Davis and Pedler together developed the storyline for this together, and the task of writing the scripts was originally given to BBC staff writer Pat Dunlop, who was also writing for the sports soap United, because of his commitments to that show, had to drop out of writing for Doctor Who. Left with that kind of writing void, they brought back Ian Stewart Black, who had of course written the previous story, The Savages, to complete the scripts for The War Machines. Lloyd and Davies, believing that the audience saw Doctor Who as stodgy and old hat, wanted to bring the show firmly into the swinging 60s. And with that in mind, they brought in their own companions, Michael Craze as Ben Jackson and Annika Wills as Polly Wright. Craze had started acting at age 16 in armchair theatre and later took a lead role on Sidney Newman's Target Luna. After Doctor Who, he had roles in the likes of Dixon of Dr. Green, Zed Cars, and Journey to the Unknown. During the 1980s, he shifted his career away from acting and managed a pub while also frequently guesting at conventions. He sadly passed away in 1998, falling down a flight of stairs while also having a heart attack, which wow. is quite a way to go. Wills was also a child actor, so she started acting in 1954, age 11, in a show called Child's Play. No, nothing to do with Chucky. <laughs> oh. She was later a regular on Strange Report and had guest roles in The Saint, The Avengers, and Emergency Ward 10. She was also married to the celestial toy maker himself, Michael Goff, from 1964 until 1979. After their divorce, she left the UK and spent time living in Laos, Vietnam, India, the USA, and Canada before eventually moving back to the UK. Like all good former companions, sorry Dodo, she can now be found on the convention scene, as well as appearing in various Big Finish audio adventures. With that huge information dump on our two new regulars, back to the War Machines. In the director's seat, we have the series debut of Michael Ferguson. He'd previously worked on Compact, 199 Park Lane, and The Newcomers. He'll direct three more stories for the show between this one and the end of season eight. Due to budget constraints, no new music was composed for this story, and stock music was used once again. As designer... Ray London takes the reins. Great name, Ray London. And this was the first of three jobs on the show for him, and he'll return in both seasons six and eight. He's also known for working on Adam Adamant Lives, and he will later go on to work on Dad's Army, Zed Cars, Doomwatch, Are You Being Served, and Blake's Seven. We haven't previously talked much about costume designer. For the majority of the show so far, a lady called Daphne Dare has done some really ster sterling work in that department. However, at this point she's on her way out, and on this story she was joined by newcomer Barbara Lane. 
later in her career, Lane would win an Emmy Award for her work on Ellis Island and a Saturn Award for her work on Willow, so she goes on to become quite successful. That rounds up our behind-the-scenes information. It's time to move on to our short summary, which is in the hands of Don this episode. Over to you, sir. It's 1966, in the heart of swinging London. The Doctor must stop Voltan, a computer set to be connected to other computers some three and a half years before networking is actually invented. It can also take over human minds some 30-plus years before the invention of social networking. Meanwhile, new companions <laughs> Ben and Polly are introduced... And Dodo is given a dramatic send-off befitting her importance in the show. <laughs> Oof. Savage. That, that sums that up well. So thank you, Don. That brings us into our discussion of the story. Episode one. Okay, screw the story. Let's talk about the titles. Uh, I love them. Did anyone oh. else get the impression they were sort of imitating Saul Bass? who yeah, did the titles maybe. for Hitchcock films. Yeah, a little bit. I could see that. It was definitely, I mean, I'm glad they tried something. I, I don't know if it necessarily worked, but they tried something. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it a lot. And uh, it's something we'll see a bit more of in the next few stories. I think it's just something new and interesting. And I, I love the fact that at this point, the show is trying something new. And that goes right down into the details, such as the title card. I liked that the design seemed to keep through to other parts of the story. So it wasn't just a, oh, hey, we're going to randomly throw this on at the beginning and it doesn't make any other remote sense. Like the W was seen later, so... And you mean in, in Votan's branding, where in the yes. process of taking over the world, he has to make sure he gets his logo and everything? <laughs> it's very modern. You know, with every yes. hostile takeover, you've got to have good branding. Believe it or not, there are actually some Doctor Who font nerds out there on the internet who go to great lengths to identify the various fonts used in Doctor Who title cards from 1963 to present. Does that surprise anyone? No, in no. fact, I, uh, it's E13, something. it's the same thing you see on checks at the bottom. So they actually, uh, the, the chaps who do this found out that there are actually some slight differences between fonts like e, E13 or whatever you said. <laughs> they believe that this one was actually a custom created font specifically for this and they haven't been able to find an exact match. Oh, nice. There are people like that out there who go to that nth level of detail. Hello, Clayton Hickman, if you're listening. <laughs> this story is a huge departure in the fact that it is so fast-paced, and that starts up right from the beginning, and I love it. Did anyone else feel like they had missed a scene when the Doctor entered where Votan was for the first time because he had at no point established his credentials or lied about who he was? He just kind of shows up and someone introduces him. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like he knows Major Green who lets him in, and yet there's been nothing to establish that. So, you know, we're, we're just taking it as fact that the usual blagging his way in has already happened. I just assume they just let anyone that looked kind of like a professor that time period just <laughs> is allowed to just wander into a laboratory. Well, wasn't that like a post office building? So what if he was just there to deliver some mail or something? I don't know. <laughs> In the 1960s, the British post office basically controlled all telecommunications, whether it was mail or the phones, or I guess as implied in the story, computer networking three years before it was actually invented, as Don said. Yep. October 29th, 1969, the ARPANET. <laughs> Don, do you have that committed to memory? or, or you I have know? most of it. I knew it was ARPANET and I knew it was 1969, but I had to look up the actual date. 
because I was curious. This this story, I really enjoyed it because it is both way ahead of its time and extremely out of date. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) It's very impressive. Wow. The other thing is they very quickly ingratiate themselves with the staff as well. So Polly immediately takes Dodo to the hottest night spot in town. Inferno. Inferno. And things suddenly got really hip. Yep. (laughs) I mean, this has suddenly gone from, you know, zero to the Avengers. (laughs) It was... It was so weird because it was like all of a sudden we're in this like hip club and it's like you have guys hitting on women and like, you know, people feeling, you know, and all this other stuff and men saving them and all that. And I was just like, wow, this is not this has not been Doctor Who at all. No, (laughs) it was fun at all. And, you know, to your point, Julie, Ben comes to the to the rescue of Polly from the sleazy guy. And it's like, oh, yeah, this guy must be the new muscle of the show. He's very working class. Which is funny because, I don't know what it was, six stories back, they decided they weren't going to allow Dodo to be working class. Very true. So within within the same year, 1966, we now have a working class companion. I think that's just a sign of the regime change from John, Wy- John Wiles to Innis Lloyd. Ben does, you know, stand up to protect Polly, but they then tr- is a total dick and turns it around on her. He really comes across as a miserable, just <laughs> like jerk of a person in this first episode. Yeah, just a little bit. But he turns that around too. I guess he's very good at that. I'd also like to point out that once again, this is you know going to like how the show is changing and they've already done this technique before. In this particular episode, there's an editing sequence where we have three different scenes transpiring at the exact same time. And the scenes are intercut all three together in between each other and just just stat I mean sandwiched in between itself like over and over and over again as things kind of develop and I thought that was a good change because usually you know at most on the show we do two shots two scenes you know at, at, at most but this was three scenes edited together I'm talking about when the doctor makes it to the uh, Royal Science Academy yeah I just thought that was really just a nice more modern advanced way of telling the story instead of you know cut here you know have one scene in point a have half of our people there then have our other half of our people in point b we do all of a then we do all of b then we might go back to a or then we'll move on to c but this was a b c a b c a b c maybe mix it up a little bit more it was quite interesting they also did something that i found interesting at the very beginning which is for about 30 seconds there's no dialogue mm. When they arrive, when they get out of the TARDIS, and he hangs his sign up, and then it it takes a second. You really get an an established feel of where they are. Incidentally, I love that sign. It's in the font that Votan uses, and almost immediately we have a policeman showing up and looking at it. So the Doctor proves his point. I, I just think that's such a nice little touch, particularly after the hurried takeoff at the end of the um the massacre where uh steven shows up and he's like oh my gosh we've got to leave there are police on their way so you know nice nice little defense against that speaking of the press conference at the uh the royal scientific club that feels and i'm not sure if any of of you other of of the rest of you have uh watched any of the quatermass serials but that feels uh very quatermass it's it's a plot device that's used a lot in those serials and I mean, this is really drawing on a lot of other science fiction influences from the time. 
It's it's it goes once again to just how there's this is like a it feels like a significant episode. Maybe not, and we'll get to the quality or you know and argue about that back and forth. But it does become significant because, like you said before, it's Doctor Who taking place in present time on Earth. It's a very classic, but I mean, well, now classic, maybe not so classic then, but like a you know computer uprising skynet artificial intelligence taking over the world story which you know we've grown sick of now but that was fresh back then and then um yeah it's just it's and then like we said the editing technique as well it's just it definitely feels like this is a a real like change for doctor who and like and and also it just reminds me a lot of like a a third doctor episode i was gonna say i think this is hugely influential and and becomes more so as we get through the second Doctor, and then even more so once we hit the the third Doctor and Unit era. It does feel like a, a proto-Unit story. Yeah, absolutely. You have the civil servants, you have the soldiers, you have the the malign um, influence uh, hitting contemporary Earth. And uh, can we bring up the fact that I really enjoyed at the beginning of this episode how when they were testing out Wotan... At the very beginning, it basically was like someone trying out Siri or Alexa for the first time, asking like just random <laughs> math questions. And I can't was the was the weather asked for as well. But they also I made mean, the classic just... mistake of setting the voice to evil. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it, it, it disrupts the whole thing. And then I also believe that the Wotan sound uh, is a dial-up modem. Did anyone pick up on that? It sounds like a dial-up modem. We've already talked about Voton being somewhat evil and having the stereotypical evil voice, but I want to talk about how Dodo gets brainwashed over the phone. And this is something I think we'll see a lot more of in Doctor Who, and that's the idea that an everyday object can be something threatening. So you can get brainwashed by this computer just by picking up the phone and having it send a signal over to you. So suddenly the everyday object becomes a lot more threatening than than it is and that's one of the ways doctor who kind of gets under the skin of, of children yeah i mean it's a you know a classic technique that is uh you know makes people feel very vulnerable you know every time like if you watch this with a child's imagination you're always trying to put yourself in you know the character's position and trying to think your way out of something or ways to protect yourself in well it's kind of tough to pretend to live a life without answering a phone yeah. And then, as our cliffhanger, we have Votan telling his newly minted minions of Professor Brett and, and Professor Crimpton that Doctor Who is required. This is our first reference to the Doctor actually being called Doctor Who on screen. I wrote a bad haiku about this. <laughs> you wrote a bad haiku? Yes. Oh, let's hear it. Let's see if I if I can remember how it went. Um, silly computer, Doctor Who is not his name. The end credits don't count. <laughs> I'm not counting that off in my head, so but that's that's the gist of it. I like it. That makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of the end credits, did anyone notice that Votan is credited? Not the voice of Votan, but it says and Votan in the credit, <laughs> which I love. 
Yeah, I enjoy that too. I heard he demanded a, tr- a separate trailer for this entire episode. Such a diva. Is a trailer big enough to house all of Votan? <laughs> I don't know. Depends on the trailer. Yeah. So, on to episode two. This really establishes the threat of Votan. He's going to decide who shall live to serve him and who shall be eliminated. <sighs> You know, your classic, you know, artificial intelligence take over the world, killer robot kind of thing. I do it's like, like that in, this, yeah. in this episode, uh, when Crimpton and Brett are talking to each other, it sounds like they're, I mean, maybe I've been watching too much politics lately. It sounds like they're like establishing or stating Wotan's like political platform. <laughs> London is the first capital to be taken over. Then Washington and Moscow. War machines must be built immediately. London is obviously more important than Washington and Moscow. Yes. We shall require skilled labor. A labor corps will come into operation immediately. Vote for Wotan. I mean, you pair this with, I think it's in episode three when Polly is uh, brainwashed and working in the factory. And she talk- she's telling Ben how much you know she enjoys it. It's very almost Mao's China. Yeah, a little mm-hmm. bit. But I will say about Wotan, he did create a lot of manufacturing jobs. <laughs> For a very short period of time. Yeah. Vote on 2020. And, yeah. and I, I believe this is the, the future that Andrew Yang has been warning us about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Andrew Yang. Oh, boy. The other question I had on this is once Votan starts mobilizing, the mobilization is surprisingly fast. Like, if Votan went online effectively that morning and only started brainwashing people at the time of the press conference, how did it get all of those boxes and materials delivered to the warehouse same day? Complete with branding. Complete with branding. (laughs) Went through copyright lawyers already. Just amazing. He wouldn't need lawyers for that. It's fine. He's going to take over. Those laws don't matter anymore. (laughs) That's true. But still, the efficiency in the supply chain. (laughs) Just to, just to poke a little plot hole in here, if Wotan can basically get you with his voice, or at least his voice through an electronic instrument like a telephone, shouldn't he like set himself up to try to get into like on television systems like around the world? Because then he can really recruit a lot quicker that way. He might eventually. But he wants to build his precious war machines first. Yeah, you gotta have some of that, you know, the fighting and the, you know, he wants to pit people against each other. It's fun. <laughs> Needs to knock over a few boxes first. Yeah, a lot of crate knocking over in this one. Lots of it. Those those crates never saw it coming. Not only do we get the doctor in a hip club, which was which was nice, we also get our comedy hobo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love the comedy hobo. And and why is it like in science fiction or in horror so often that like that that's our our person who ends up like being made example of to you know, show the, the the danger involved i want to know how often that trope has been used oh, i feel like so many oh, times goodness. oh man uh, and it's definitely something that we will see a lot more of in doctor who going forward as well i think a, a plot reason why you might do that is because it's inconsequential right yeah so that's that's the easiest thing it's like who can we kill off or who can we make an example of oh this guy who <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares about the homeless <laughs> I, I mean it's unfortunate that's from a storytelling perspective then you don't have to give him a backstory you don't have to right. give him anything else 
it's easy. But this one does drive the plot forward. He doesn't just die for no reason. You know, the doctor sees the report of his death in the newspaper the next morning. Which is impressive that the newspaper <laughs> report on a hobo death. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it clues him that something's a little amiss in the Covent Garden area. One thing I also want to point out. So Dodo goes missing and then she shows back up and she's trying to lie about everything she's not very convincing and i kind of wonder it's like wotan you might want to think about having your people be a little bit less mind control so that they can actually you know lie a little bit better if that's what you're going to be trying to do with them why why you criticize wotan wotan good (laughs) (laughs) wotan very good i I think it really says something though about the character of Dodo, that Jackie Lane's acting, I think, is genuinely at its best in the show so far, once Dodo has been brainwashed. She almost seems like a companion in this story, which sounds weird. It's almost like she's really there and they finally got a character for her. And then she's dehypnotized and packed off to the country. And she goes to visit Sir Charles's wife. Yeah, I, I was waiting for a thing that said Poochie died on the way back to his home planet. I mean, oh, it was just... Oh, my God. <laughs> I was about to make that same reference. <laughs> oh, yes. It, it, was, it was written as smoothly as that. I mean, especially at the very, very end when Polly basically just says, you know what? She's good. That's, that's, that would have been really funny uh-huh. if she just said, like, Dodo said it to me. You know what? She's good. She's fine. No. Bye. <laughs> Firstly, I thought that... Billy Hartnell was absolutely magnetic in that scene where he's dehypnotizing Dodo. That was some wonderful acting from him. Secondly, does anyone want to know what happens to Dodo after this, according to some of the expanded media? Oh, okay. Oh. According to a book called Who Killed Kennedy, she suffered severe and recurrent psychiatric problems as a result of having been hypnotized by Voton. Goes between hospital to hospital and is eventually turfed out onto the street, falls in love with a journalist, gets pregnant, and then a unit soldier who has been hypnotized by the master kills her. It's wow. quite brutal. Can I change my answer in that I don't want to hear what's going to happen to her in the, in the extended <laughs> fansturbation? And then in, an, in another story, during an off-screen story, uh, while she was actually traveling with the Doctor, she caught a space STD. <laughs> so she has been... <laughs> Quite poorly served by expanded media. I I do want to say this. I've been highly critical of companion exits during the Wiles era. Sorry, Nathan. But I'm going to have to criticize it here, too. Like I said, she she left in almost the same way that she arrived, just kind of randomly and poof, she's gone. We are getting a little ahead of ourselves, but all right. Yeah. John Wiles is gone, but I, I still think this is the worst companion departure of the show's 57-year history <laughs> at this point. So, I mean, she was just so poorly served by this. Meanwhile, the war, the first war machine is being uh, built. And uh, let's say that the set design here in the warehouse, I like the overhead shots, especially in the tramp chase scene. I liked it. It just I liked the I liked how you know the shots were composed for this episode in particular. It was good. 
it gives this a bit more scale, I think. That's just a very classic technique. I think of um, brainwash masses chasing like the one person who isn't a uh, very uh, 1950s invasion of the body snatchers kind of feel that that overshot where you see the large crowds, you know, surging and rushing. That's, you know, mm-hmm. nice and creepy. Very B-movie. Yeah. We were talking earlier about, you know, their supply chain. Well, there's this one sequence of shots where it shows very strategic places in London. It includes, I think, like a warehouse and a factory and an airport or something along those lines. I'm like, you know, of all the places to go, those are all the things that you need in order to build these machines and a strategic place to be once you have them all. So I'm like, you know what? That's probably how they worked out with getting all their stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the machines themselves, not efficient at all. Uh, They're big and they're clunky. Yeah. Riley, you talked about the brainwashed people chasing the hobo once he's in there. The other thing I thought was really, really striking and horrific was the use of one of the workers as a weapons test. And he just stands there stoically as he's being gunned down by the war machine. He shows the cold, brutal nature of it all. And I, but once again, I, and you know, I, I couldn't help but think of, as me and Don have referenced before, the Kids in Hall skit regarding, uh, you know, an overarching boss making examples of his own henchmen. So I, I couldn't you know, appreciate it on a terror or dramatic level. I find it a little humorous, but you make a good point. For those of you at home, I believe the name of that sketch is called Things to Do. I highly recommend checking it out. The other thing is I feel like Ben is very clearly being set up as a new companion. We've effectively said goodbye to Dodo, and we've got the doctor sending Ben off to investigate. I mean, if that's not signaling where he's going, then I don't know what is. Do we have an opinion yet of Ben? I mean, outside of the previous episode, I mean, I'm still looking for like some sort of charm or charisma, but he feels kind of flat. Give it to episode three. All right. All right. All right. Calm down. Which is a good segue. Thank you, Julie. No problem. (laughs) Speaking of which, depending on who you are, if you're Riley, uh, personality-less Ben is in trouble. If you're Julie, new favorite companion Ben is in trouble. I have no strong uh. feelings one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> I can't call Polly a very strong companion yet because she's brainwashed through about half of this. So yeah. note that her constitution is strong enough that she doesn't need to be sent to the countryside to recover at the end. That's true. And she you can tell she's fighting it as well. That's true as well. But she also stops Ben from escaping. But they, she keeps them from killing him. Also true. I'll take a little bit of good with a little bit of bad. It's what you got to do. Compromise. I have a lot of, uh, no, Ben. No, not Ben. And then, yay, Ben. So it's a lot of... (laughs) Again, I'd heard of the names Ben and Polly, so I kind of knew that those were the new companions. But you could tell that they were setting that up. And it's like, all right, I guess I got to cheer for him. Let's go. Yeah. The other thing I really, really loved in this episode, and Riley's already touched on it, is some of the direction. It cuts to the Doctor and Sir Charles having a back and forth, and the the way that's directed I thought was wonderful. And then later, there's a scene where Crimpton and um, and Brett are barking out orders, and that's done kind of in extreme close-up. I really just thought that's something very innovative for Doctor Who at this point in time. It's probably a tried and trusted filming technique but it's new to the show and i really really liked it i also was thinking in particularly episode three that gorgeous gorgeous shot the closing shot of the episode 
where, you know, it's got it's the hero shot for the doctor. You know, as he stares down the war machine is that is just really well composed, really. I mean, just it looks great and it's just very striking. And it's the first time where it to me on the, the television show has looked cinematic. I think that shot is absolutely iconic. It to me is up there with Barbara being menaced by the Dalek. Mm-hmm. In terms of show cliffhangers, mm-hmm. or the Dalek rising from um, the River Thames in the Dalek invasion of Earth, I mean there there aren't that many iconic cliffhangers at this point in the show, and I feel that this is one of them. I really liked that shot. It was it was really good. But I did also notice that there was at one point you saw the shadow of one of the cameramen. <laughs> so the serial is ruined. <laughs> I finally found one. One item i did feel might have been a little bit of a i I don't want to say it was a plot hole but it was somewhat loose plotting is polly allows ben to escape her brainwashing's clearly not total and rather than just being killed because they've already shown there's no real regard for human life she's sent to vote on for punishment that's not how i would have expected the story to go now obviously they can't kill off polly because she's got to be one of the new companions but that that just didn't really work for me it is also rather inefficient Mm-hmm. I think it's somewhat inefficient, but at the same time, they knew that she knew the doctor, so it could have possibly been a play to, to get to him. I don't know. That's the only thing I can think that makes it make sense. I guess that does. Good call, Julie. I, I don't like it. I, I don't like when that's the reasoning, but I think that's what it was. This is a bit of an aside, but we often talk about how Doctor Who is usually on the side of the counterculture. Did anyone see Sir Charles as really just representing your your standard British thick-headed authoritarian? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he yeah. was such a melchit. I mean, he just didn't want to listen to anything. I mean, there's that scene where the doctor is talking to Ben and accepts his story and Sir Charles just doesn't. And in my notes I've just written typical bureaucrat. I'm I'm so happy. I'm so happy you brought him up because the actor who plays Sir Charles William Mervyn, I believe it's pronounced he plays the same type of character uh, in a really, really good comedic film called The Ruling Class, starring Peter O'Toole. Mm-hmm. And if no one's ever heard of it or you haven't seen it, uh, if you like Peter O'Toole and you like very British comedy of like the early 70s, late 60s, I highly recommend it. And William Irvin plays a very similar character, and it's fantastic. Interesting. That's good to know. I'll have to check that out. We also have the War Machines Rampage, which has the first ever army action in Doctor Who. We'll get quite used to that over the coming <laughs> years. One thing that may not be well known about this is this story was, like many others that we have, it w- was for a while missing. And I think it got returned from Nigeria, but it had been heavily cut in places by the censors. I think one of the countries it was sold to, these, these prints tended to be bicycled from country to country. So one country decided that they didn't want some of these scenes where soldiers were being killed by the war machine. Um, They thought that was too graphic for their audience. We, of course, have, thanks to fans uh, recording the audio off-air, and that's how we get the recons, have the complete soundtrack. So what the BBC Doctor Who restoration team have done is splice in some footage of some of the other scenes from the fight to make it flow out for the full length of the episode, which is why... We repeatedly get that scene of the war machine knocking over um, boxes. Mm. Oh. 
So it wasn't actually filmed like that. That is to cover some cuts. Can we talk about the design of the War Machines? It definitely feels like they're trying to make a bigger, badder Dalek. Yes. Do we think they succeeded? No. Obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of get what they were going for in that they, they wanted to basically build something that was akin to a tank. But equally, they appear to have some instrumentation on the sides, which could be damaged in a fight, which doesn't seem very efficient. So I, I think, you know, if they had just been very clearly a, a big armored thing that was relentless, which is how they're filmed, but they don't have the look to go with that. If they had done that, then I think they would have been a lot more effective. And the arm piece is just comical. It looks like something a bunch of people just threw together in a day. Imagine that. <laughs> and they still haven't figured out the stair problem. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. How are you going to get up those stairs? That's an excellent point. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. Until we get to the point where they have fixed the stair problem with the Daleks, I will continue to point out the stair problem with the Daleks. To the Daleks, it's not a problem. The solution is you blow up the building until the stairs are no longer there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that brings us to basically to the end of episode three so let's move on to episode four i really liked some of the things that happened in episode four i really liked the tv program that they had going on and everyone just being really calm about everything which i thought was surprising and then when they had the stuff on the radio and they had that zoom in shot was an interesting interesting choice but i really like that by the tv program you mean the news broadcast yes so that's awesome because this is the first cameo appearance in the show the guy who they had for that was an actual bbc newsreader at the time so they got someone who people were used to seeing actually appear on the show to read the news that's really cool i didn't know that and again, that's that's an influence they pulled over from Quatermass. Again, this story's wearing its influences on its sleeve. But yeah, I, I think that's so well done. Let's talk about the war machine itself and how it's defeated. Incomplete programming, <laughs> was it? Yeah, that's a little bit lame. You, you never buy version 1.0. <laughs> Wait until at least 1.1. <laughs> You didn't. It didn't go through, you know, QA process. You know, it just didn't go. Yeah, rigorous well, testing. No UAT. No UAT. I mean, this is no. this is what happens when you try and cobble something together in a day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Come on, Votan. Your your plan can wait. I mean, honestly, he should have waited. He should have played the the long game. Yeah. Yeah. Wait until <laughs> you're actually somehow networked. I mean, I know he was the the Votan was trying to do this ahead of time because it was in danger of being found out, needed to start mobilizing, but... I think you could mobilize a little bit secretly without everyone finding out within, like, a couple of weeks. I think it just shows that the plan... that Votan's plan was a little clunky. Okay, there's that. But there are 11 more war machines due to be brought online and all attack at the same time. That was another thing. Very inefficient programming where one machine knows the exact plans of all these other machines. That that wasn't very, very strategic. Also, 11 machines for the entirety of London. These things are slow. They're clunky. They're going to take a while to get around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, though, I, I say they're slow and they're clunky. There is that scene 
uh, I think it's in this episode. It might have been in episode three of the War Machine. No, it is this episode. Run the War Machine heading through the streets uh, after being reprogrammed to attack Votan, and suddenly it can move incredibly quickly. Well, so... it's out in the open. It, it's not trying to turn corners and hit boxes. True. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you let it pick up speed. Yeah. But really, it just. It's a weird design. I don't think they thought some of it through. Um, and then them trapping it was its actually kind of interesting because I at least liked during that trap, like it stops and it seems like it's trying to think that maybe this is a trap. And so I like appreciated that they were like, let's not make this thing that stupid, but we're sure going to capture it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got a note saying this war machine's pretty stupid. It goes into what is quite clearly a trap. <laughs> it's less than a day old. Give it a break. Yeah. I do love the Doctor's reaction to it. So once it's trapped, it raises its arm and the Doctor just goes, ah, oh, now, temper, temper. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I think through this story, Hartnell really is at his absolute best. I know we're getting towards the end of the first Doctor's era and I'm really going to miss him. Yeah. I would say the only thing that I miss about him and in regards to this particular serial is the fact that he doesn't really have any opportunity to really bounce off any well you know any companions he's really kind of on his own in my opinion in this one because ben and polly are so new and dodo's just gone after episode two i just miss those times where he would have someone that could you know personalize but bounce off of instead of just these you know you know one 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 time serial characters another thing to think of here is this story is the really the first time we've seen the first doctor in a contemporary setting so it's it's almost a very very strange and unfamiliar environment to see him in and i think that throws his character off a little bit i like what i see but i don't think it's quite the same first doctor we've been used to he's he hasn't got any familiar companions he's in a setting that we're not used to seeing him in He's dealing with civil servants and and uh, the army again. It's all just it's it's very different. That's all different, but I love his interactions with the war machines themselves and with with Wotan. I, I I think there's there's some things that we miss, but then there's some things I wouldn't say that we gain, but you know we're not missing everything. And I think the the resolution of the Doctor reprogramming a war machine to turn on Wotan is quintessential Doctor Who. Oh, absolutely. Oh, definitely. One thing that we haven't really discussed about Photon is the terrible sound editing that they decided to go with, where you can't understand a single thing that he says at the end. Right. Like I, I, I was like, I, I tried to like rewind and watch some more, and I was like, you know what? No, I, I just don't care what he says. I, I can't. <laughs> I don't think it's that important. I mean, you can tell perfectly well what's going on without listening to or understanding what Votan is saying. I mean, it would have been nice to, for Votan to have, like... I mean, I know it's supposed to be artificial intelligence, but could we, like, learn about his philosophy a little bit more? It just seems like it's kind of quickly given, and then we're off to the races. You know, I'd like to hear him, like, you know, mention how, you know, terrible humanity is or something. You know, classic stuff. Also, what's, what's Votan going to do once it's taken over? Just rule. Invent Pong and then play it. <laughs> I, I do feel like that's something that's missing. 
He's going to build himself another AI and he's going to fall in love and then they're going to have Aww. a bunch of war machine babies. Aww. Big finish. Get on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not my favorite trope, but sometimes it's just the story is, hey, we want to take over. That's it. Figure out what we're going to do after that later. Fair enough. It's an unfortunate trope, but it, it exists. Let's talk about the scene where the war machine actually gets up to the top of the post office tower and destroys Votan. We have Ben showing up to once again save Polly, and I don't know if it was my imagination, but it kind of looked like he copped a bit of a feel while getting her out. Yeah, that's a very awkward way of, you know, forcing a woman out of a room. Yeah. The war machine kills poor Professor Clinton. Which was a superb death, though. It was, but I felt a little bad for him. Yeah, but still superb. And then once Votan is destroyed, the hypnosis is broken for all. That's the end of the Wotan clan. Hey! I also love that the doctor just is like, all right, peace out, guys, and just like <laughs> runs off. <laughs> so in Norse mythology, Votan is another name for Odin. So presumably the Norse aspect is why Votan with a W is pronounced as if it has a V. In the novelization, so John Thomas Casey, this is for you. The first war machine is referred to as Valk, V-A-L-K, which is short for Valkyrie. So there's a Norse mythology influence here as well. But only a little bit. Weird. Because it doesn't really yeah. show up in the themes. But certainly in, in Stuart Black's thinking. Moving on, the Doctor slipping away and Ben and Polly following him. One thing here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong... They push their way into the TARDIS using Dodo's key. I'm not sure I remember Dodo ever being given a key. I thought Ben got it when the doctor gave him his cloak and something fell on the floor. Yeah, I thought the doctor dropped it. Yeah, the doctor dropped it. Yeah. Where did I get the idea it was Dodo's key? Why I have no idea. Why would he no give idea. Dodo a key? Well, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually going to point out, I think this is the first time that a companion has actually physically had a key on their own without being like specifically given it to them or you know he got it when yeah he got it when the doctor took his cloak off okay i just misunderstood somehow but now we have oh, well. yet another double kidnapping but this time with some plausible deniability because apparently he doesn't <laughs> know when someone opens the door uh eve despite the loud noise inside of the doors opening well that's I think wraps up our discussion. Time for the metrics. Any nominations for the camp count? Nope. No, I don't think so. And for once, I'm, I realize I'm normally the, the most keen to add to the camp count, and I have nothing here. Then nothing. Um, nope. And nothing for Quarry Watch, either. No quarries in this one. So that's a zero across the board on our current set of metrics. So that takes us on to scoring. Riley, you're up first. Uh, I overall enjoyed it. You know, putting it in, in, in historical perspective, the premise is interesting and new, and I think that it doesn't become... We're so used to stories like this now, it never became, like, boring because of it. The, I felt that the action scenes ran a little too long in episode three, but the direction was very good. We talked about the composition of the shots, and the editing was very good. I think that the negatives of it are the handling of Dodo, and I think maybe they could have given a little bit 
better or more interesting background to our new companions. Uh, get them a little bit more involved with the doctor a little bit more, show some sort of personality between, you know, meshing between them, I guess, because it just feels like suddenly we have two strangers on the TARDIS at the very end of the episode of the serial. But overall, I mean, it's fun. It's very sci-fi B-movie kind of horror, kind of enjoyable up, uh, up serial. So I will give it uh, seven and a half knocked over crates out of ten. All right, uh, Don. I think I've made clear that I really enjoyed this episode. I found it very forward thinking just in the fact that they wrote this during a time when your average person doesn't really know what a computer is. And before a computer network existed, that's pretty impressive. And like I said before, when they're interacting with it, they're, they're using it like we would use Siri or Alexa or what have you to ask it questions. It's both ahead of its time and hopelessly out of date. And I found that really interesting. Um, I am going to knock off a little bit because as we've said, uh, the, the departure of Dodo wasn't really given any weight. And I've criticized that in other shields before. So I think it's only fair to do so here. But I really like the way it was done. I liked the titles. I like the noises that they use throughout it. So I'm going to give it eight enemies of the mechanized evolution out of 10. <laughs> All right. Julie. I really don't know that there's much I can add. You know, the things that we can knock is, you know, obviously the, uh, the Dodo incident, we'll call it. You know, I don't like some of the editing choices that they made from a sound perspective, but some of the direction, especially in episode three, is fantastic and things of that nature. So I will actually also give it eight sailor outfits out of 10. <laughs> All right. And that brings it over to yours truly. And I'm going to go on record and say, I love this story. I always have, but rewatching it has made me appreciate it even more. As I've mentioned uh, to at least a few of you offline, I'm watching a lot of contemporary TV alongside this. So I'm watching my way through the Avengers and Quatermass and A for Andromeda. And this very much brings in some of the best elements of that. It's got the contemporary London settings of the Avengers and Quatermass. It's got the pacing of the Avengers. It's got the mad computer from A for Andromeda that's controlling minds. And it's got the kind of Quatermass style um, news broadcasts, press conferences, etc. I think it's so well done. It's, as Don said, somewhat ahead of its time and yet also in retrospect painfully wrong on other aspects. I'm going to knock a very small amount off for the clunkiness of the war machines and for the way Dodo's departure was handled, although honestly, by the end of episode three, I really didn't miss her. So for me, this one has nine out of 10 hypnotizing phones. Ooh. Which brings us to a story average of 8.13. So this wow. is done well. That brings us to the end of our discussion on the War Machines and to the end of season three. We'll be back next time with our Season 3 retrospective. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. 
And as a reminder, you can email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe if you're not already, and please do leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. But for now, thank you very much for listening, and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Votan Clan, was recorded on Wednesday the 19th of February 2020. And always remember, Doctor Who is required. Bring him here.